With all of that said, uh, I hope it's been fruitful um, going through Sermon on the Mount. I know it's really hard, even for myself, to remember everything that has been said. I'll do a little bit to try to put a bow on some of these things that we've been considering. Um, but if anything, if you're ever kind of struggling a little bit with where, where should I read, where, where should I go to kind of get some devotional life, I'd really encourage you, make your way over to Matthew chapter 5. Um, read and think about this passage. This really is Matthew chapter 5 through 7 is really kind of Jesus describing what does it look like to live in his kingdom. Um, let us never be at fault for making up our own idea of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Uh, he gets to say what it looks like, right? So with all that said, let me read the passage for us, um, and I'll pray. We're going to start in chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who has built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before your word, God, be with us, we pray. Help us to have faith in Christ. Lord, help us to abandon all forms of self-confidence or self-love. Lord, help us to look squarely and supremely at the Lord Jesus, knowing that we are being called here to respond to Jesus and to his message. So Lord, may the gospel be good news in our hearts. May it not just be good advice, may it not just be another moral teaching, but good news that we can be made right with you because of the life, death, and resurrection of your son Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Jesus is ending his formal sermon here. Um, how many of you have been on an airplane before? How many, like how about this? Who has not been on an airplane? Okay, just two. That's okay. Hey, don't be ashamed. Um, I, I think the first time I rode an airplane was when I was in the eighth grade. And because someone paid for my family to go to Hawaii. So the next time was um, my first day of college. My dad pulled up the LAX and said, hurry up and get out. This guy's telling me to leave. And just shoot me off into LAX and said, go figure out. And I didn't know what to do. Um, but you get on this airplane and, you know, it takes forever to get on. And they have all these instructions. And they always say, pay attention. Everyone has their headphones in. They don't listen. This plane crashed. We'd all be doomed. Um, and, uh, you know, they start passing out some refreshments. But if you notice in a plane, you know, a uh, plane ride, they have this initial descent. So they, they get their you know, momentum going, and, you know, the wings, great lift. 
and they start going up, and they, they go up, 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 until they hit their cruising altitude, right? Depending where you are in the country, depending on where the jet stream is, you know, pilots might be try to hit the jet stream to either save time or fuel, whatever it is. But you have like the first 20 or 30 minutes, it seems like, and that's where they tell you, kind of keep your seatbelts locked until then, right? And that's where, you, like, the first turn of the flight, like, the stewardess don't come out because they're still kind of getting to that cruising altitude. And right when they reach it and they start going just straight, you hear, like, the ding, and the next thing you know, they're kind of wheeling the cart down the middle of the aisle. And one time I got, like, stuck in the middle because I went to the bathroom, and, like, there was a cart in the front, and then um, I was stuck behind it, and then I was like, I'll just go stand in the back. And they brought another cart behind me, I'm like, Stuck in this aisle. I don't know what to do, right? And I stood there for like 20 minutes until they finally, I was at the very front, so it was weird. Um, all of that said, you have your initial takeoff, you have your cruising altitude, and then what do you have? Your ear is hurting. That was, that was great, yes. You have your descent into it, right? You have your descent. And that's where you start cleaning up your stuff. They, you know, they're, they're on it with trash. It's like every two seconds they have a trash bag in your face. You're like, gosh, okay, fine, take my trash. <laughs> your initial descent, right? And that's where you start kind of getting prepared to like open up your phone, text your ride, thinking about, you know, whether, you know, if your trip's starting or is your trip ending and all of these things. And as we think about Jesus in a sermon where, you know, he started us off with the Beatitudes, these blessings, these principles, and he's kind of like getting us to cruising altitude. He is letting us know what is it really, like what are the principles of someone who claims to be part of the kingdom in which Jesus is king? So do me a favor, look really quick at chapter five, beginning of verse three. Jesus is saying like, congratulations, like happy are you, blessed are you if you are someone who is poor in spirit. Why should that person be happy? Why should they be blessed? Because Jesus says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And if you remember, when we talked about this verse, what we were saying is that the only way to enter the kingdom of God is to admit that you don't deserve it. To admit that you bring nothing. To admit, I am, as far as my spiritual barometer, I am bankrupt. And Jesus says, if you can admit with humility that I have nothing good in my own, I don't deserve to be in this kingdom, I am a poor debtor. Here's Jesus' words. Congratulations. Blessed are you. And he goes on and he gives a number of these. And really what he's doing here is he's kind of trying to show these are the characteristics. Humility, mourning over sin, the people who are meek, those who have an appetite for righteousness, the people who can show mercy the pure in heart, those who actively desire to make peace. These are the things in which Christians do. And so as he kind of launches into his formal sermon, Jesus has been showing us again and again and again, what does it look like to have a righteousness that is required to live in his kingdom? That you would be salt and light that people would look at your life and they would be able to say something different about him. More than that, you would have a relationship with the Bible in which you know that it is your guide and that it is not irrelevant. Every single jot and tittle of this book 
is essential to the person living inside the kingdom of God. And Jesus, I mean, he has talked about so many things. He talked about anger, lust, divorce, keeping your promises, don't retaliate, loving your enemies, avoiding the desire to be seen by men when it comes to your giving and your worship and your prayer life. He has talked to us about prayer. He has told us about fasting. He has given us the, the imperative to, to don't live for this world and what this world can give you. Store for yourselves treasures in heaven. And part of the principle of that is because you can't serve two masters. If you try to just serve what this world can give you, you're not going to serve God. And so he knows that, 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 that all of these calls of, of loving your enemy and praying like this and not being anxious and not worrying about tomorrow and seeking first the kingdom and the righteousness is a hard thing to do. And at times, Christians are the first people who begin to kind of look around the other people living in the kingdom and saying, hey man, remember Jesus said we're supposed to love your enemies? You didn't love your enemy that well. Like, hey, remember when Jesus said we're not supposed to break our promises? You broke your promise. Jesus, no, hey, really quick. Before you notice a speck in your brother's eye, search your own heart. Take the log out of your eye. Don't judge one another. Don't, don't be that type of Christian who is more concerned with other people's sin than your own. But at the same time, be discerning. Don't be that person who just throws your pearl, this gospel that we have, to the mockers, to, to the swine that Jesus would say. Because ultimately, the, the way we should treat people is the way that you want to be treated. How many of us, you don't have to raise your hand, you don't have to verbally say, how many of you like it when people go out of their way to make you feel welcome, noticed, and loved? How many of you like it when people forgive you when you're having a bad day, who are patient with you? How, about, how many of us appreciate when a friend doesn't gossip about us, who keeps their promises to us? Think of all the ways in which you like to be treated. Jesus says, go and do that. That's really hard. In fact, it's so hard, we need divine help. Many of us do not treat people the way that we want to be treated. We expect to be treated as a way, but we don't have the expectation in ourselves to treat others that way. And so Jesus says, matter of fact, this is so hard. Here's what you need to do. Ask, seek, knock. Ask your heavenly father. Your heavenly father knows how to give good gifts. If me, who is evil, know that my daughter loves unicorns and that she wants to go to Red Robin on her birthday, I could probably do that. If, if Aaron can take care of his daughter, how much more will your heavenly father, when you come to him and you say, Father, I want to live in your kingdom. I'm having a really hard time of loving people the way I want to be loved. Help me. Oh, your heavenly father delights in answering prayers in which you are seeking righteousness. But, but, but do, you, do you see the trend here? Jesus is just, he's just like one thing after another, after another, after another, that is just so challenging the life of the kingdom is not a walk, in the, a walk in the park. It is something that requires constant vigilance, constant dying to ourselves, constant humility, constant repentance. And in fact, it's so hard, Jesus even says, hey, there are two paths, there are two trees. 
there are two foundations. One path is wide that leads to destruction, and one is narrow. Strive to enter on the narrow way. And so Jesus, he's concluding his sermon after he's saying all of these things about what it looks like to be in the kingdom. Jesus is trying to give us this final pitch in his very ending to say, build your life on me. Because here's the point of the Sermon on the Mount, that we do not have the righteousness required to live out these things. We need Christ. Listen, none of us here can even hold a light to all of the ways in which we are called to live in the Sermon on the Mount. On our own effort, on our own strength, we will fail every single time. But in the very last words, Jesus has good news for us. Not just advice, he has good news. So with all of that said, I pretty much just did a really crash course summary of the entire Sermon on the Mount. I want to just consider again verse 24. So look down with me at verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Okay. So tonight what I'd like to do is to show us the three ways in which Jesus wants us to respond to the Sermon on the Mount. Three ways which we respond to Christ's words. First is this. We respond by putting our foundation in Christ. We respond by putting our foundation in Christ. Guys, listen. If there's anything you learn from the Sermon on the Mount, here's what you need to learn. Everyone is building their life on something. Every single person who is alive is building their life on something. Now, when I say life, I know sometimes as Christians, we use a lot of terminology and we expect and assume that people know that we're talking about. But Jesus here, how do you build your life on something? He's not, he's not being literal here. He's talking about your inward life, your soul, your spirit, that it is resting on something other than yourself or another teaching or another religion. Let me be very clear. The Bible does not have a lot of room for the middle gray, mushy-gushy stuff. The Bible, in fact, is very pretty black and white. There are two paths. There are two trees. There are two confessions. And there are two foundations. And the point being, everyone is going to be on one of those two paths, bearing fruit of one of those two trees, and having a life that is built on a foundation of one or the other. And one foundation is building your life on Christ. And another foundation is every single thing else you can imagine. This is a, a convicting point for me. Um, as, as I think about the person who is to build their house on the rock it's convicting because it's so easy just to kind of say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm Jesus, that's the foundation I picked. Good. But, but let me just try to pull back the onion a little bit of our, our kind of our quick answer to that. Like, you know, it, you hear me say, Aaron, okay, you got either Christ's foundation or everything else. I, I choose Christ. Well, let me just kind of ask a few questions. 
When you're really struggling with something, when you're mad or angry or depressed, what is your knee-jerk reaction? What do you go to? Truthfully, answer that in your own heart. How many of us really, when, when we feel slighted by a friend, when we feel like our life is kind of spiraling out of control, and we don't necessarily like the circumstances in our life, is our first reaction to, to come to Christ? To rely on his word? To ask for help? To remember that as Christians we have glory promised to us? To remember that I need to see past the circumstances of my life? How many of us, when we are tempted with sin, make it our habit to recite scripture? I don't want to say this to like overly guilt us because none of us do this perfectly. Not, not even this person up here talking. But there is a point of conviction when it's really easy to say my life is built on Christ. But in fact, a lot of times we build our lives off of our friends, off of what we're good at, off of our prospects, off of just the hope of a better tomorrow. Do you know how many people just are living just hoping that tomorrow will be a little better? You know, people living in dire poverty just have this fatalistic worldview that, that maybe their next life and karma will be better or maybe tomorrow will be a little better. So Jesus is saying, respond to the words here by putting your life on me, on, on Christ, which means this, guys, it means this. Is Jesus your hope? Is Jesus your comfort? Is Jesus your joy? Is Jesus your treasure? You know, the shortest parable in the Gospels, you know, a, a man finds treasure in a field and he sells all that he has in order to buy the land to get this treasure. Do you know what, he, do you know what he's talking about? The gospel, the, the fact that we can have a right relationship with God because of Christ, like, is that truly, would you be willing to sell everything you have in order to have Christ? Learning from Christ in the sense of that he defines what is your right and wrong. Following Christ, meaning that you obey him We'll talk about that more in a second here. Worshiping Christ, sharing Christ, all of these ways in which Jesus is saying, build your life on me. This is compared to the people, if you scroll up just a few verses. In verse 22, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name or cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, what's very fascinating is that even religious people don't build their foundation on Christ. They build it on the things they do, on the things they know, on having the right doctrine. We talked about this all last week, right? 
There's a point in your faith where you need to move past what does Jesus want me to do for me, for him? I need to read my Bible more. I need to pray more. And what needs to happen in your heart is that you recognize that God just wants you. That he wants your heart. That he died for you. He didn't die so that you can just go slave yourself into doing a million things and forcing yourself to choke down Bible reading. He died for you. Build your life on me. Jesus explains this a little bit. Look at verse 25. He gives us like a, a picture. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Second way we respond to the words of Jesus is to anticipate the storms. We, we respond to Jesus by anticipating the storms. Uh, something that makes me very nauseous and angry as a pastor is, is the prosperity gospel. I, I talk about this in subtle ways, but um, the prosperity, the health and wealth gospel, another way we'll talk about that, is, is more or less sometimes there, there's people who, I guess uh, I would categorize them in the false prophets of verse 15, beware of false prophets. They, they will come to you and say, hey, God just wants to bless you. I mean, is that true? Do you guys think that's true? Does God want to bless you? You should all be nodding yes. Absolutely. What's the question we should ask, though? What does that blessing look like? Because what they'll tell you is that God wants to bless you by giving you a better bill of health and by giving you more money. But you have to buy the book first. To buy the book first and make sure to tithe, right? <laughs> so listen for a second, though. There's a song we sang up today in church. Um, what gift of grace to Jesus, our Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. You see, for, for the person who truly knows God, he knows that the best gift that God ever has for us, the blessing in which he has blessed us eternally with, is Jesus Christ the righteous. You see, the problem is, is that a lot of times there are people out there who try to sell us on a life in the Christian world in which everything is good and God wants to bless you and give you everything you want and if you just kind of do these things and buy the book and give us some money or whatever, then everything will work out the way you want it to. So there are people who teach that, that the reason why you didn't get better from your sickness is because you don't have enough faith. Because you didn't pray enough. This makes my heart angry. It makes me angry. What Jesus is teaching us here is, now you, you need to anticipate the storms. Rain will fall. Hard times will come. Everything in your life may at one point seem like it is all spiraling out of control. Paul says to himself, anyone who desires to live a righteous life will suffer. Jesus, the, the, the source of our faith, the head of our faith, the founder of our faith, suffered the most. How do we think that since Jesus suffered so much that we, his followers, wouldn't suffer? And, and part of living in the kingdom, guys, listen, is a clashing kingdom with the world. I'm not one of those people who like to kind of quote God's not dead and all these college professors are against us Christians and, and us versus them. But at the same time, 
We live in a kingdom, if it is to be truly marked by righteousness, if it is to truly be marked by people who are meek and pure in heart and who desire for their heavenly father to be glorified, that will clash with the kingdoms of the world. And all of this means at some point in your life, at some point in your relationship with Christ, if you are to make Christ the foundation of your life, you will experience a storm. You will experience hardship. Some of you may say, Aaron, no, duh. I have that right now. Life is hard in ways. And part of what Jesus is trying to get us to, to understand that life in the kingdom does not mean a life of ease. You will be tempted at some point or another to lose sight on the goodness of the gospel. You will be tempted by people who make you think that the science world and the biblical world just aren't in tune and you have to pick one or, or the other. You will have people, and probably do right now, who will say, that if you have any stance about biblical sexuality, you are wrong, you are a bigot, and you should be punished. You will have hard times. So one of the ways we, we respond to the message of the Sermon on the Mount is to recognize that if I live in this kingdom, it doesn't mean that my temporal life is always going to be the best. Friends, think of the countless people who just in this year alone in parts of China and Africa who have literally spilled their blood being faithful to Christ. Given up their life. Suffered years and years and years in a prison cell because they were faithful to Christ. And yet we over here in America say, you know, when the praises go up, the blessings come down, right? You've got, got to be faithful to God. Don't worry, then all, all your life is going to be better. You're all these blessings. People are over there in prison. I'm in prison for this, bro. What blessings are you talking about? If you're talking about the blessings of Christ, then we're on the same page. Third way we respond to Christ is by listening to his word. Is by listening to his word. Um, do me a favor, scroll up really quick at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So I didn't talk about this verse last week. I purposely skipped over it for today. But look what he says here, the contrast. But who's the one who will enter the kingdom of heaven? Jesus is saying. Who is the one who, who is part of it? The one who does the will of my father. So who is the person who will inherit the kingdom of heaven? The one who does the will of my father. Now look what he says here again in verse 28. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Jesus is very clear that obedience to his words is the primary marker of the person who will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, let me, let me ask you guys a question. If I got up here and every single week and said, hey, if you're not obeying Christ, don't be confident that you're a Christian. The only way to go to heaven is if you obey. 
Does any, does any of those statements make you feel like a little like, hmm? Maybe? You're kind of like, well, what about all those times, Aaron, you keep saying like, we're only saved by grace through faith and it's no work of our own, but it's only through what Christ has done. But now you're saying like, hmm, the only way I get to go to heaven is if I obey enough? That doesn't seem to compute, right? The two seem contradictory. So remember what I said though earlier. The whole Sermon on the Mount is really based off this idea that you must have enough righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. So do me a favor, really quick. Look at chapter 5 again. Look at chapter 5, verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. See, Jesus has said it from the get-go. You don't have this righteousness. And the whole Sermon on the Mount is really a litmus test of showing you like, yeah, you're right, I don't got this. The whole lust thing in my heart, guilty. The whole like not retaliating thing, guilty. Oh, if you call someone a fool, you're liable to the fires of hell. Guilty. 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 You see, what Jesus is saying here, though, and what he's kind of getting at is ultimately building your life on Christ is knowing and believing that it is his righteousness that saves you. It is his righteousness that when it is given to you, here's what it begins to do. It begins to change us. A theological term for that is it sanctifies us. It gives us new desires. See, part of being someone who can have the humility to say, spiritually speaking, I don't have it, is the person who begins to grow in their appetite for righteousness. You see, the Sermon on the Mount, guess what it's doing? It is just giving us the quickest path to the real reason why Jesus came. Was the real reason Jesus came just to give really good sermons on top of rocks? Was the real reason Jesus came just to kind of feed a few people who were hungry in the wilderness? Was the reason Jesus came was to start his own mini youth group with these 12 young teenagers? Did he come just to give social order or, or new political ideologies? Jesus came because he knew that the only way for anyone to have a relationship with God, to be spared from the judgment that is rightfully ours because of our sin, is if he came and became our substitute. The Sermon on the Mount, more than anything, leads us right back to the death and resurrection of Christ. It is only by our faith in Christ and trusting that, I, God, I have nothing and it's by looking supremely at Jesus do we understand that we will never be able to live this kingdom life. Without Christ and his word, I'll never begin to grow in having an appetite for righteousness. Apart from the imputed righteousness of Christ by faith, I will never begin to live a life in which it will come close to being fruitful for the kingdom. And so when Jesus says here, obeying the will of my Father, 
you know, as he says here, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them. What Jesus is ultimately getting at is saying, you can't, but I have. But now that I have, learn from me. Rest in me. Put your hope in me. Follow me. You guys, if you hear anything from me, I know I say this phrase a lot, but if you hear anything from me, remember this. The Christian life is not so much primarily what we do for God. It is what he has done for us through Christ. And as we turn to Christ, here's what begins to happen. Obedience doesn't become this chore where I have to read my Bible this much or I have to pray this much or I have to have this much obedience. How much obedience do you need for you to feel confident that you are obeying this command? At what point have you saying, oh yeah, I've listened to the words of Jesus. Will you feel confident in yourself? Never. How can we ever feel confident in our obedience? And that's why this passage is so rich because Jesus is saying, building your life on the rock is a life in which you say, Christ. If anyone were to ask you, why should you be confident that you have peace with God? Because Christ died for my sins. Why should you have any confidence in anything in life? Because of what Christ has done. And what's sad is so many people take the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and they make it into moral teachings. Love your neighbor. It's a golden rule. We learned that in kindergarten, right? And really what the whole Sermon on the Mount is getting us to recognize is without Christ, I can't do any of it. But with Christ, I can. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the grace there is in Christ. Father, um, many of us are tempted um, to believe that by simply just saying we believe in Jesus, by doing a few religious things, that we are, in fact, building our life on Christ. But Lord, help us to know that faith is more than just mental assent. And so, Lord, help us to, this week, turn from our sins, to trust in Christ, to learn from him. Lord, give us joyful hearts in this, we pray, in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.